At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. While you're enjoying this episode of Arts Access Florida, we want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll like. The Zest is WUSF's podcast about food in Florida. We explore food history, chat with award-winning chefs, and more. Listen at thezestpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Arts Access Florida podcast series, When Freedom Brings. In this six-part series, we speak with our Black and Brown community on what has transpired in the art world since the emancipation of slavery on June 19, 1865. We have open conversations on their experiences as people of color and their contributions to art, community, and education. The series highlights their continued efforts to move the needle forward. This is When Freedom Rings. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Freedom Rings. My name is Adriana Rodriguez, and today I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Arthur Hollis. Dr. Hollis is an English professor at the University of Tampa, where you can find him teaching a variety of courses, such as composition, world literature, and African literature, which happens to be today's topic. Dr. Hollis received a bachelor's degree from the University of Sierra Leone, then he went on to Canada to receive his master's in Dalhousie, 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 Dalhousie yeah. University, and finally, he received his PhD from none other than right here at the University of South Florida, which just so happens to be where the WUSF Public Media Studios is located. Hey, Dr. Hollis, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on and being our guest. You're welcome. So let's go ahead and give uh, the audience a little background of yourself other than what I just said. Okay. Um, I was born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, mm-hmm. in the city of Freetown, many, many years ago. Um, and, and I went to my elementary and primary school in Sierra Leone. And then for about five years, uh, my family traveled to the United Kingdom, and I was schooled there right up to perhaps like junior year of high school in the States. And then I returned to Freetown and uh, attended the University of Sierra Leone and uh, graduated there before. As you've already let the audience know, I um, attended Dalhousie and USF. Awesome. So what was your upbringing like? Um, Was it the reason why you're so into African literature? Well, not necessarily African literature, but literature period. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a household that didn't have television, and so we lost ourselves um, and we, by we, I mean my, myself and my siblings, we lost ourselves in books. We read books, and I think by the time I was nine, certainly before we traveled to the United Kingdom, I'd probably read all of the children's classics. You know, that was what we did, mm-hmm. um, and we listened to the radio. So it was a world in which information was coming in from the outside into our heads, yeah. It's like a, another way to explore the world without having to like leave your house. In a right. Sense. Yeah. Uh, the equivalent today, I guess, would be to take a virtual tour. That's what we were doing without video. With your mind, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I know my mother, for instance, she 
came to the States when she was seven. So she learned English reading the Dr. Seuss books. Okay. So I know like literature is a very, for her, it was like a very important thing to like read and know what you're reading and understand what you're doing. Because when you have that in you, nobody can take that from you. That's nobody fun. can take any of like any of that from you. Um, with that, how has your traditions and your culture shaped the way that you live and, and how you teach? Um, well, I think the way I would answer that question is to just simply identify three things. Uh, um, my, my culture is a culture of sharing, um, a culture of caring, and a culture of fosterage. Um, and, and I think the best way to also illustrate that is to just talk about the way in which we care for the, the seniors in our societies because there's virtual, there are virtually no um, assisted living facilities, no old people's homes, that kind of thing. So when somebody... Uh, gets to the age of 75 and above, they generally tend to live with their families. So you grow up as a child knowing that grandma and grandpa and sometimes um, other relatives, senior relatives are living at home. So that caring is just part of what you do. And I think uh, almost by osmosis, I extend that to my students in the, in the classroom. And the same applies to um, fosterage. Uh, it's not just the nuclear family, you, your brother and sisters. It's also the uh, less fortunate relatives who may come from the rural areas and uh, need education in the city schools. And so therefore you grow up with surrounded by other people who you call siblings, but they're not blood siblings. And, and I think that what that has done for me as far as teaching is concerned is to make it expansive. And so when I, when I encounter and engage my students, it's almost as if I'm seeing them as family, certainly in the, in the classroom. And I think this is consistent with the way in which pedagogy is, is explained in the States, that what you want to do in your class is to build a community of learners. Mm-hmm. You kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and ask. Um, what is something that isn't often shared or said about the traditions in your culture? You did mention, you know, big family tradition, like everybody is in the house. Everybody takes care of each other, not just the nuclear family, but everybody outside of that as well. But aside from that, what is some traditions or just something about your culture that you feel like isn't shared or isn't seen as well in media or in, or in anything that's recorded? I think traditions, by definition are sort of fossilized rituals. Mm. Uh, you know, like we develop traditions because we want to solve problems. And once we've solved that problem, we, we keep repeating the practice. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's something that perhaps ought to be said about tradition, it's that it can sometimes lead to resistance to change. Mm. So to go back to the fosterage or even my classroom, if I've adopted a certain mode of teaching, um, it's really difficult sometimes to embrace new technologies. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I have to be pushed by the students, uh, maybe even my own kids or relatives, <laughs> in order to learn new technologies. So tradition is good because it, allow, it provides stability. Mm -hmm. It provides continuity. Mm -hmm. um, but the world is changing around traditions. And, and so for practitioners of certain traditions, they have to open up their minds to change and new possibilities. So that's something that I think is not often spoken out loud. Mm -hmm. I like that. It's a, 
it's a, a reassuring way of hearing that like um, older generations are able to open up and change as new ways of thinking, new ways of learning and living coming through. And I think it does create like a really cool blend of traditions or of uh, newer ideas for like fostering like togetherness and oneness and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and talk, dive into this topic that we are here for today. Um, so you brought up something really good when I was doing research on you and on this topic in general. And you, you said that we should change the term from just African culture or the country of Africa to the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? The term itself, diaspora, refers to the, the scattering or dispersal of a people. So you probably probably have heard of the Jewish diaspora. And, and the African diaspora just simply uh, provides a label for you to identify the people who are scattered. Mm-hmm. The scattering resulted from uh, the transatlantic and, and the trans-Saharan uh, slave trades. Mm-hmm. So Africans were able to, were dispersed to other parts of the world because of those two this, uh, um, routes or trades. This is not to say that there weren't African explorers, but we don't hear about those kinds mm-hmm. of people often enough. Mm-hmm. More recently, uh, Africans uh, have voluntarily left the continent for economic reasons. Uh, they want a better life in another place. Sometimes it's because of political persecution um, or you know they have difficulties adjusting to the traditions that we talked about a moment ago. So there are a, a variety of reasons why they are dispersed across the world. They travel to Canada, to the United States, to various parts of Eastern and Western Europe and South America. Um, uh, now, when I say that, I think most people would think that, you know, it's a safe flight by a plane. You enter through uh, an, a recognized port, but we all know that there are uh, migrants who flee on foot, mm-hmm. who try to cross from North Africa into Europe across the Mediterranean mm-hmm. Sea. Mm-hmm. But these are all the constituents who disperse around the, the, the world and then form small, sometimes small, sometimes large um, conglomerates or communities of black people who, because of their shared common point of or- origin, tend to have similar cultural characteristics and features. Mm-hmm. And it's that whole... Um, sort of collection of people and practices that we call the African diaspora. But it, it, it sh- shifts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, like an amoeba. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it changes according to time and the composition of people who do most of the traveling. Why do you feel or why do you think it's important for us to recognize and understand this term, especially in today's world and what's going on? I think the best way of illustrating that is perhaps to mention that last week, I think it was last week, um, the the new British Prime Minister appointed uh, a British citizen, so he was born in the UK, um, who is now the Chancellor of the Exchequer. The Chancellor of the Exchequer is the equivalent of the US uh, Treasury Secretary. Okay. Um, but, and his name is Kwasi Um, His parents, both his parents, were from Ghana. 
Um, if you think of General Colin Powell, he, he died recently, maybe two or three months ago. Um, his parents, he rose to become the Secretary of State of the United States. And I think at one point he was the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And his parents were from Jamaica. So you, what, what we are seeing increasingly across the globe uh, is that Africans, uh, uh, citizens of other countries who have relatives and ancestors or heritages in Africa are occupying um, senior level positions in various uh, governmental bodies, national, state, local. Mm -hmm. And I think the importance of that is that these voices that may have been ma marginalized are given an opportunity to be heard as policies being formulated at the national level so that it's not just confined to um, a particular population, to so let's say white males, for instance, or um, any other majority population. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the minority populations have been included in the way in which policy is formulated. And with that, what do you think the African diaspora has the effect on literature and culture and anything creative, anything with the arts, anything with life, what do you think, what effect do you think that it has or how do you think that that has affected it? It's hard to measure the effect, mm -hmm. but it's certainly there. And I think the best illustration of that is Chimamanda Adichie. Um, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's from Nigeria and is arguably the most well-known uh, fiction writer. Okay. African fiction writer in, in the world, mm -hmm. uh, arguably, I say. She's written five books. They've been translated, I am pretty certain, into the major languages of the world. And so her works have circulated way beyond Nigeria mm -hmm. to all parts of the, the globe. Mm -hmm. um, her, one of her books, uh, We Must All Be Feminists, um, is, was so popular, or at least so important in the eyes of the Swedish government, that they gave the book to every 16-year-old in the country. Oh, wow. Okay. So that gives you a sense of, you know, the reach mm -hmm. of these individuals who belong to this African diaspora. Mm -hmm. Again, I can't tell you with any degree of certainty what the effect is. In other words, I can't measure it for you. Mm -hmm. But it's th these individuals and personalities, they're movie stars, sports stars, they're out there. They're being recognized as black or uh, mixed race. Um, and they're, I, I should point out that they're white mm -hmm. Africans as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 I, and I think what they're doing is sort of gradually elevating the profile mm. of black people right across the globe. Um, among the 25 most popular TED Talks is Chimamanda Adichie's um, The Danger of a Single Story. 
um, words from her speech, we should all be fem uh, feminist, was part of Beyonce's flawless um, album. Okay. 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 It's All right. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So um, they're not necessarily political figures. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily people who are going to change the world. But if young girls and young boys are familiar with these people and familiar with where they come from, you can see how they would at least change the mindset of the younger generation and anybody who's exposed. Mm -hmm. Uh, to their material. Shakespeare and, and British English writers and how they ship history in our classrooms, especially here in America. Mm -hmm. um, in a Dr. Hollis world, how would this translate with African literature? Uh, typically, I teach introductory courses to African literature. Mm -hmm. and, and I typically start in, by, by telling students that modern African literature, uh, as we understand it today, started around the 19th 50s okay. with Chinua Achebe and Things Fall Apart. You've probably heard of Things Fall Apart. Mm -hmm. So in my sort of perfect world, that's where I would start and then teach the, the, the established writers like Achebe. But African literature is dynamic and it's evolving. Mm -hmm. And we talked about uh, Af the African diaspora there are lots of um, Africans who were born in the continent, kind of like me, mm -hmm. who now are naturalized citizens of either the U.S. or some European countries or Canada and Australia, who are creative writers. Mm -hmm. um, and they are generating uh, pieces of literature, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, that are not afro uh, Africa-centered. The, the reality is my experience is a lot more sort of mixed, mm -hmm. more hybrid. I've spent more of my life in the United States than I've actually spent in Africa. So when I write, I write, and most writers do this, they write from their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And consequently, when you, you talk about African literature, I, I, I'm often wondering whether I whether to include black diaspora diasporic writers or just confine African literature mm. to the, that produced by Africans in the continent. At this point, it will be sort of a, the individual choice of the professor. Mm. Um, but but that's the sweep that I would take if I wanted to introduce African literature. Now, hey, there's graduate work. Mm -hmm and doctoral work that that could lead somebody to, to zero in on a particular concentration or a particular field. So in your opinion, where what is the state of African literature? Because you, you did just explain how it's just a mixture of people's experiences being born in Africa and living elsewhere, or they're in Africa and they're actually writing these stories and everything of that nature, um, and being that actual, like you said, the historical findings of written actual books, maybe... 1950s. So today, what would be the, the state of African literature? I would say it's dynamic. Okay. It's growing. Mm -hmm. And it has evolved. See, people like me who teach in universities tend to be narrowly focused on books that are published. Mm -hmm. Publishing is expensive. Yes. 
you need an infrastructure in in order to 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 publish a book meaning you have to have a press mm-hmm. you have to have editors agents all of these people have input in the production of a book because the infrastructure that i've just described is not present mm-hmm. um the internet has now become the vehicle through which africans publish mm-hmm. quote unquote their material is that why you have uh, i know that you have a website so is that why you share other works of literature on your website that's that's partly it mm-hmm. but there there is a whole array of literary material mm-hmm. that's been published um that people like me who teach in the universities might consider sort of second rate mm-hmm. but that are the, the very popular mm-hmm. um shorter stories shorter stories written in indigenous languages mm-hmm. g- giving advice uh very didactic they they teach you things there are pamphlets there are uh, radio shows even think of stand up comedians mm-hmm. um people who want to tell their stories are using these various media mm-hmm. to tell their stories so people are interested in stories they're just delivering those stories in different forms and i think it's universities mm-hmm. and professors who have to catch up to the direction in which the literature is going mm-hmm. right so speaking of teaching and <clears throat> attending universities you attended three different ver- three different universities in three countries on two different continents um is there a difference between the way education is taught and received in those environments that you were in so being in those different like i said different countries and environments like you like Sierra Leone to Canada and then down here to Tampa and then taking all that how does that how does that affect what you're trying to teach how you teach does any of that have did any of those experience have anything on the professor you are today oh absolutely um the Sierra, the Sierra Leone educational system is based on the british okay. educational system and what i recall of both is it involve a lot of sort of memorizing rote work a formal kind of education mm-hmm. which is sort of diametrically opposed to the the way education takes place in the united states now i think uh, you, that's largely because in the us and in canada um there there's been a great deal more study in how to teach mm. um and you know there's an abundance of resources to make teaching in different ways possible with the emphasis these days being on student centered learning learning by doing service learning mm-hmm. those kinds of things and i think that provokes uh, and, and stimulates maybe is a better word more independent creative kind of learning and uh what i've done i think i don't know how successful but but i've i've made the effort to uh create a a more laissez faire classroom mm. and give students assignments which encourage them to be inventive mm-hmm. and not just simply to be to reproduce mm-hmm. 
you know. So, so yes, there are differences. I've tried to embrace the differences, but, you know, like some old habits tend to <laughs> die hard. So there are some things I still do that, you know, I still think that students should read, for instance. Mm-hmm. There's no substitute for, for reading mm-hmm. because without reading the material, you can't discuss it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, so. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's like something you hope that, you know, they take with them that stays with them for life or like maybe some advice you give them or how, how they work and how they research? Like what is something that you want your students to take from you? Stories, particularly literature, provide windows into the world. Mm-hmm. So the more stories you read, the more you're likely, like we talked about doing virtual tours mm-hmm. earlier, the more stories you the read, the more likely you, you, have, you are to have a broad view of the world and of people. Mm-hmm. But I think I also emphasize to them that stories help us think. When you and I read a story, um, you know, a month later, we don't really remember the particular details of mm-hmm. the story, who did what, but we remember the point of the story. So if you take, for instance, uh, Cinderella, mm-hmm. okay, you can forget a lot of the details, but you know that Cinderella was this girl who was ill-treated by her sisters and her aunt. And, but because she was patient, she was really eventually rewarded with the prince, mm-hmm. right? So the point of that story is that patience leads to good rewards. Mm -hmm. And what happens with our brain is is that we store that point and the many other points which we grab from the stories we read, right? And we use that when we come across new situations. So if you find yourself now living with some an aunt and her daughters, <laughs> and they're ill-treating you. you. You use the Cinderella story to teach yourself to be patient. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so stories help us think. So I always tell my students, read and get the point of the story. But even <laughs> more importantly, learn to tell stories so that you can shape how other people see the world. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful tool. Everybody's experience is one thing. So when they read the story, their like personal experiences like come into that some way or shape or form. And then when you share that reading experience with other people, you kind of see how their perspective of how they saw the story. But at the end, at the end, when everybody comes to the same conclusion, it's kind of like like to me, it's kind of a beautiful thing because it's like so many different minds, so many different ideas, so many different ways to process information and, and what's in front of you, and then to come to the same conclusion and to teach that to other people. I like that idea. I've also found that you are writing a that you're working on writing a novel between relationships of Africans, African Americans and the Caribbeans. Um, the Car- Caribbeans. Uh, why is this important and how has this journey affected your writing? Oh, um, it's important simply because that's the the orbit mm-hmm. in which I I, I live. Uh, you attend functions you inevitably are going to um, run into people from the Caribbeans and African-Americans. And in as much as we are all black, we we all don't share the same views Mm -hmm. and and, and cultures. And and even when we're from, some of us are from the same continent. 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, people from Eastern and Southern Africa are different from people from West Africa, and and those two groups are different from people from East Africa. So it's the dynamic. Okay. The oftentimes there is an expectation that we are homogeneous and mm-hmm. we're not, and and I'm trying to understand that relationship and and how it plays out in various a- areas of life and so that is my preoccupation in terms of my creative writing and and there's just tons of stuff to write about i wish i had enough time mm-hmm. to to explore that in the various ways i think one of my most recent stories uh deals with it in terms of lbgtq issues mm-hmm. in which um an, an, an African, a, a young man born in Sierra Leone spends most of his life in the U.S. and then decides to return home and sort of um, come out mm-hmm. to not only his family but to his rural community. And it throws that community into um, disarray. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's it's those kinds of issues, how they... Uh, they they connect mm-hmm. with where we come from, where we are now, and the different value systems. It's that nexus of issues that I'm interested in exploring. That that sounds like a very uh, like a very interesting story or topic to even like read or know. Just just knowing people's cultures and how they grew up and families, and then being a part of the LGBT community and coming out or trying to play that safe space between, okay, I want to be myself, but I also want my love and my family and everybody to still be there. So I think that would, that, that I want to read that story. That sounds like a really, really okay. interesting story. Uh-huh. Yeah. So speaking of writing, in 2013, you were one of the top five finalists for the 2013 Kane Prize for African writing, 96 entries from 16 African countries. What was that experience like? Oh, that was a wonderful experience, except the fact that I didn't win. That, <laughs> that, that was a bad part of it. Um, you know, I, I wrote and turned this story in, and, and I'd even forgotten. Mm-hmm. So the day I got the email uh, notifying me that I was uh, shortlisted, I initially didn't even remember which story I sent. Um, but basically what they do is they pay for you and the other shortlisters mm-hmm. to go to London um, and uh, and they wine and dine you for about a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get to go to the um, Houses of Parliament and I forget the name of the lady, the Duchess, Duchess of some important place. In <laughs> uh, she took us around. Um, we went to Parliament. We had lunch and and we toured the building. Mm-hmm. In between all of these activities, we did readings. And then um, the night before the... Yeah, then we were uh, driven to Oxford University. You know about Oxford mm-hmm. University, the Bodilian R- Library. And... Um, it must have been a world... Like, oh, oh, we guys must have been in heaven for that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was really a, a great experience. Uh, but... That's where the nervousness comes mm-hmm. in because they they put five people together for an entire week. You're you're literally doing everything together, so it's kind of like being on a um, uh, 
what's the program called? Big Brother Light mm-hmm. okay. version. Yeah, it's only one week long. <laughs> so you, you, you get to know these people. You get to even like them. Mm-hmm. But underneath all that sort of is the, the like game. Fighting. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I want to win. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Then sort of halfway after, through the dinner, they announce the winner. And when you're not the winner, mm-hmm. you're, you're sort of like in a daze. But... The exposure, mm-hmm. the fact that you're shortlisted, uh, in my case, has been very helpful mm-hmm. to my career. I've had an opportunity to go to Kenya to read and, mm-hmm. and, and go to Germany to read. So um, you, you may not win, but there, there are benefits that accrue from being shortlisted. So how has this motivated you? Oh, um, you know... I. It's made me want to write more, mm-hmm. um, and, and I'm continuing to do so. So you're continuing writing. Do you continue to submit to various arts and literature organizations as well? Um, yes. Uh, the, you know, that's what we do mm-hmm. as professors, you know. But, but yeah, absolutely. Um, anytime I have an opportunity, I submit to uh, a competition or a, a, a journal mm-hmm. or a magazine um, and, and that's what I do on a continuing basis. Speaking of those, what are some publications or online assets that you feel do a great job at highlighting African arts and culture? Well, I am wedded to two. Mm-hmm. There's Wendy Belcher's website, and I think it's wendybelcher.com. Okay. And it provides some of the most sort of well-researched information on African, pre-colonial African writing. Okay. Um, identifying the writers, the scripts, the languages. So for me, I found this very exciting because honestly, I did not start studying African literature until... I came to the United States until I was about to write my dissertation right here at USF. That was when I started focusing in. Mm. So that website, if if you're interested, is sort of where you want to start so that you have the background uh, as far as African, pre-colonial African writing is concerned. And then, I I hope I don't butcher her name, but... uh, her name is Cor- Dr. She's a professor, Cora Ataguchi. Okay. And she has easily the most comprehensive website on and timeline on African history and culture. Literally anything that you want to know. Oh, wow. It's pages and pages of dates names, events, individuals, um, you know, structured in an easy-to-access format with links built in so that you can watch videos. um, And typically, I I just tell my students, okay, for background information, this is the site (laughs) that you need to go. But, you know, hey, Good old YouTube is there. You, you Google anything, you'll find <laughs> That's something. That's very true, too. That's very true, too. 
what do you feel, in your opinion, in your experience, in your research, um, is the biggest misconception about views on Africa? Well, that it's one, that's, it's a country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, that um, it's, it's a country in which, it's a country replete with problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, wars, farming, dilapidated infrastructure, um, corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the images that we see on television all the time. And I, I'm and when I list them off like this, I'm not suggesting by any means that these are untrue. Mm-hmm. But they they do not capture what I would describe as the thousand little progresses mm-hmm. that are happening throughout the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, people making cars, uh, other people using um, tires to uh, construct playgrounds for for kids, mm-hmm. um, businesses organizing uh, seminars and workshops so that young people can come and share their ideas. They're, those things don't get told. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, the, the image that's left about Africa in most people's minds uh, about those things that I listed, and I think that that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. You know. Absolutely. I, I mean, even now, like, going into Google, going on whatever sites you have and you type in, you know, Africa or anything unrelated, you don't you don't see the good sides, you don't see the pretty things, you don't see the countryside, you don't see arts, you don't see the you know, you don't see the music. I, I think actually now a lot more music, especially Afrobeats is, is really big yes. in America now. Mm-hmm. Afrobeats, reggae, dance hall, all that kind of feel. Um and I do notice that I like I'm I'm in music, I'm a DJ, but I do notice that a lot of DJs now are like merging the two or thinking they're the same thing and they're absolutely not. Right. Love the music, love the beats, love everything. But I, I see that now more than anything. But when you think of African uh, arts and culture, you don't see artists, you don't see painters, you don't see photographers, you don't see videos, you don't see none of that. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing now is, or hearing now, is Afrobeat music coming out, which is right. great, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. But we don't see the other great sides of what Africa has to offer. Right. And the fact that a lot of, I would say, the world culture is influenced by a lot of African culture because of the African diaspora, because everybody was so displaced and put in different countries and different cultures and it blended so well with a lot of other countries. But I think to me, because I'm um, Afro-Latina, but a lot of my, you know, South American culture and music definitely comes from the uh, displaced or the enslaved people that were in those countries. Right. Uh, And, you know, it goes back to the whole idea about voices. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, we need greater repre- representation mm-hmm. of all of the various elements that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get enough of that. Absolutely. And so uh, people get a very limited mm-hmm. parochial view of what Africa is all about, mm-hmm. what it produces, mm-hmm. and the 
diversity of talent yeah and artists you know textures the colors everything absolutely, everything yeah, the sounds absolutely. even mm. the food everything oh, even the food the, the food I, for, I forgot about the food <laughs> as you know one of the misperceptions but even prince charles i i think was involved in the jollof wars i don't know if you know about jollof rice which is in Africa, it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's big. Mm-hmm. The different countries prepare it differently, mm-hmm. and everybody claims that they have the best the be- jollof yeah. rice. And I think uh, King, King, now King Charles was invited to weigh in on that, and he said, no, I don't want to touch <laughs> this one. You know, this, this Good is to like, set that one out. Yeah, <laughs> yes. smart man for that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, last but not least, after today's interview, what's one thing you want the audience to take from today's conversation? Everything is a story. Yes. And that you need to be able to tell good stories, Mm -hmm. stories that have a point, Mm -hmm. that can remain as a kind of blueprint in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And, and, And I think... I'm, I'm, that's more than one thing, but I'll go ahead. No, since go ahead. You've given yeah, me go the ahead. Opportunity. Um, we, we live in a time when there are sharp divides. Yes, absolutely. But if you look closely at them, there are divides about what stories to tell. Yes. What narratives to tell, right? Mm-hmm. Who should tell them? Like they say, winners write history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. When mm-hmm. should they be told, and to whom mm-hmm. should they be told? So it it's everything is about the story, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, and good. people need to be aware of that. So that that's sort of my mm-hmm. should be the takeaway. The t- everything is a story. Everything is a story, yeah. and with that. We will end this interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Hollis. It was great talking to you today. You're very welcome. Definitely would love you back whenever. All right. Thank Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Arts Access Florida podcast series, When Freedom Rings. You can listen to all episodes wherever you stream podcasts or watch all episodes on our YouTube channel. Just search Arts Access Florida. We can't forget to thank our sponsors, Community Foundation Tampa Bay and Gobioff Foundation. This series was created by Malika Hollis and not possible without the help of Adriana Rodriguez and more. This is a product of WUSF Public Media. Copyright 2022. WUSF Public Media.